0: We have expectations on this show. (laughs) We
1: have standards. (laughs) They might be low, but they're still standards.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Four Color Nerds Podcast, Episode 58. I'm Rory, and I'm joined by another nerd, Ryan. Hello. The Manly Mighty Beards Edition. Together, we're going to take on this week's comics. Each week, we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there's going to be spoilers. If you don't want to hear the spoilers, take a break and go read your comic books right now. Come on back. Each week, one of us picks our favorite book. That's our pick of the week. This week, week i'm that nerd so this week my pick of the week goes to champions number three our companion song is get up stand up by bob marley because well let's take a listen get up stand up stand up for your right get up stand up stand up for your right get up, stand up. bam okay so we got champions number 3 marvel comics stand together change the world written by mark wade pencils by umberto ramos inks by victor olblaza colors by edgar delgado
1: yeah, I think this one definitely is about people taking their fate into like their own hands, you know?
0: Absolutely. That's a great addition. That's the thing is, okay, so I missed Champions number two. So I picked this up a little bit after. Obviously, we reviewed Champions number one and we all loved it. Going into Champions number three, I've kind of missed a little bit of the story here, but we start off with this awesome shot of Hulk and Viv making out.
1: <laughs> In Champions number two, they're doing a team building camping trip and they start playing Truth or Dare. Gotcha. And Viv's like, I've never kissed anyone before and then all the other Spider-Man and Nova are like, hey, maybe we could do that. And then Hulk is like, I'll see you in the woods, babe.
0: <laughs> 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 it's an awesome shot because, first of all, like that first panel is just an amazing, well done, you can like, feel the heartfeltness of it, you know, this whole first kiss type thing. And you know, We've all seen Cho getting all shy and kind of like half-assed teenager style hitting on Viv. It was a really cool part for me to like just pick up on. <laughs> just going, Ugh. I also
1: like just the size difference between the two of them—that he's—I mentioned this last time because this is the last panel from issue two as well. Mm-hmm. You know that he's like down on his knees to be the same height as her.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's good. Freaking Hulk's
1: huge, and you kind of get a little bit of a softer side of show here too. You know that all his like bravado when Viv kind of shuts him down a little bit. You know, yeah. you can see nice panel work showing his inner thoughts.
0: Yeah, and you know that's the cool thing about—I don't know how everybody else feels about totally awesome Hulk versus Incredible Hulk, but this is actually one of the. Things things i really like about the difference between bruce banner and cho is that they really are different very different characters bruce banner was all angry and all this stuff cho is his weakness is basically his emotions and so i thought that, that was a really cool way to start this off with you see his heartbreaking as she's saying oh well you know that didn't really do anything for me and he's like oh you know and i love
1: he, the part where she's talking about it didn't do anything for her it didn't significantly change her responses and then uh, she's like oh maybe i should try another gender and and then you get the this great series of panels where like nova and spider-man are both like looking over at miss marvel like yeah. oh my god it's gonna happen <laughs> and she's like not fe- feeling experimental today boys <laughs> yeah exactly you
0: Kamal's know? like mm, no and they're like so they going damn it <laughs> yeah.
1: they are still teenagers no matter how much heroic and world-changing stuff they may do they're still 16 year old kids
0: exactly which i don't know that was a great funny set of panels right there you see some argument over who's going to be the leader which i actually thought that that was a a pretty interesting exchange there because you know they've got Cyclops who's obviously the former leader of the X-Men. Everybody's kind of like debating over who should be the leader and whatnot and kind of like brings me back to our D&D game. At one point we all kind of hit this point where it's like we we're all arguing over who should be the leader and it's like you know that's, that's actually a pretty difficult decision to make when it comes down to it. So it's interesting seeing this headbutting going on.
1: I also like it. They're like you were the leader of like the teen X-Men for like two weeks. What the hell did you do? And he's like well I fought you know Magneto <laughs> and like he lists like all all these things are like, oh damn, that's actually kind yeah. of
0: impressive. Yeah, all these A list villains. <laughs> He's like, I wasn't going against the gold balls of villainy. <laughs> yeah. The reason why I really picked this issue was because it's very timely, you know, with a lot of things going through the world right now. And so of course, Kamala is from Pakistan.
1: Well, she's from New Jersey, but her parents
0: are from her family's from Pakistan. She's Pakistani by lineage as opposed to by birth. But you know, these are her people and stuff like that, and we've seen in pre- previous issues her going back to Pakistan and like kind of just dealing with the issues there and I think this is a good issue both for Americans and for people from that region because it kind of illustrates cultural differences it illustrates both the differences culturally between say Pakistanis or anybody from that area which is very timely for all of us that are here and also the idea that Americans are not saviors of the world and that to, I don't know to me it's like just seeing everybody standing up and saying well you know you guys are Americans but you know we can't show weakness by just waiting for the Americans to come in and save our asses you know I, I, I th- like that theme
1: yeah I think it goes with the idea like these characters are clearly kind of like stand-ins for America intervening in the world because they show up and they're like we're just going to kick everybody's ass and solve it and the girls who are there they basically are, are making the argument that no one can give you freedom that you have to free yourself if they accept their publicly, it's going to be illegitimate that they need to stand up to these people on their own.
0: Exactly. And I thought it was a great theme, especially bringing in the women who are fighting for their education versus this kind of old guard group that's basically trying to oppress women. I just like the general themes with it. I like the female empowerment and bringing in strong female characters. A great theme for our time. And it's really good writing. Really, when it comes down to it's like the rest of the issue is basically everybody whooping ass. That was like the thing that really like caught me on this one, really made me want to go for the pick of the week, was just the fact it was just something that was so timely with what's going on with the world today, and there was a lot of good stuff. The artwork, of course, is phenomenal. When we covered Champions number one, what I loved about it was the fact that Champions was... They're always making these new supergroup. Lately, we've been getting a lot of the new renditions of superheroes. Champions really stands out. I don't feel like this is the new Avengers or anything like that. I feel like Champions is just a really good representation of these new characters and, I mean, we've got all these great new superheroes. Miss Marvel, totally awesome Hulk. We got Nova, you know, which Nova, actually, I'm glad that we had Nova number one this week also because it was good to actually, for me, it's like Nova's kind of always been like kind of a mystery. And so to have him in there, have Viv in there, which is a great character. Just all these characters are great. They're lively. I don't feel like we're just making a lame new superhero group just for the sake of it to get these characters out there. This actually feels like a real new, lively comic book.
1: I feel like Champions addresses the actual concerns of our time, more so than some of the superhero stuff. Like, a lot of superhero books have to make up a metaphorical stand-in for something, right? And here Champions is like, nope, we're just gonna go to a vaguely generic Middle Eastern country where they're shooting women in the head for trying to go to school. We're gonna mention, like, Malala Youssef by name. We're going to directly address these issues. Exactly, And that the way they deal with it is not just, we're we're just gonna punch them until they stop
0: exactly these aren't silver age comic book heroes these are modern good rendition comic book heroes and yes of course they're all a spin-off of older comic book heroes but you know what they really bring them to life and they don't make them feel like they're a modern spin-off they make them feel like they're their own characters and honestly i've just fallen in love with all these characters and it's it's a great read i think champions is basically the best new series that's out there can't really think of another one that even comes close to taking a swing at at champions really so i'm gonna
1: have to agree that it is is just about the best new thing that's out there. The the combination of these characters, putting them together, each character in here gets their own voice. Yep. And they don't always have all the right answers either, you know, because they're teenagers, but they listen to people. When they show up and the leader of the the women's resistance movements that's that's there, they listen to her and they're like, damn, she's got a good point. She should be our leader. They are willing to listen to the people. Like, they want to actually address the concerns and problems of the people.
0: Champions number one, solid as fuck. Champions number three, solid as fuck. If you haven't read it yet, you really need to get into this. It's the new age of comics, and I wish we would see more of this kind of thing when it comes to modern-day superhero comics, really.
1: It doesn't feel overly preachy. It doesn't feel like an after-school special kind of thing, but it feels very relevant. And it's hard to do that, to be relevant, but not overly preachy or moralistic about it. Exactly. And the action is top-notch. The art's fantastic. It's a damn fine comic. It's everything you want in a comic book. If you know someone, especially like a teen maybe, who isn't really into comics that much, give them champions. They will love it. I mean, give anybody champions. They'll love it. It's amazing. I have zero complaints
0: about this. I have nothing I can shit on. So, for me, I'm gonna say I'm gonna give it five trucks Thrown Across the Horizon.
1: I will also give it five We Fight With Ideas. Nah. Nice,
0: nice, nice. All right, Ryan, let's uh, take it over to DC.
1: So here's another book that's everything I want from a comic book. This is Batman number 12 from DC Comics. I Am Suicide Part 4, written by Tom King. Pencils by Mikhail Janin. Inks by Mikhail Janin and Hugo Petras. Colors by June Chung. So Batman number 12 continues the storytelling, I don't know if it's a trick or method that he's using, where it's a series of letters back and forth between Catwoman and Batman. So you've got these really interesting this letter that he's written to Catwoman while she's in prison over some just badass <laughs> graphics. Um, <Absolutely. laughs> oh my god, it feels like you've played the Batman Arkham games, right? Yes. Like when them. you fight in Batman Arkham City Asylum, whatever, when you fight it's so fluid in movement from one fight scene to the other and yes. this is just page after page of the exact thing that is my favorite thing in comics which is a continuous motion throughout the panel and this goes page through page through page this isn't just one panel where you get that thing that I love. Yeah, just page after page of Batman rolling through like a fucking wrecking ball and surgically taking down all these guards of Bane. The thing that is really striking to it is like there's this great visual stuff to look at while he's doing it. Like, and the perspective changes too. First, he's in this long corridor. Then it changes to like the outside of a building. You see him repelling up the side of the building, and then you know back into this panel where they do this thing with the panel where they cut the panel into like segments to show him moving through. I mean, they just visually keep it very, very. Interesting interesting and then they do this this, tom king has this ability i think to cut right to the heart and truth of characters and tell like dark parts of them and i mean batman is a lot of darkness here so the main thrust of what you're hearing him say here is that batman is fucking ridiculous a grown-ass man dressed up like a bat punching people in the face and thinking that's going to make a difference that that's a ridiculous thing for a man to think that he totally agrees, but if you take off the mask, it's not a man that's under the mask. It's a boy. You know, it's the boy who was left in the alleyway. So he kind of acknowledges this is kind of like maybe almost like a childish view of how you can go and confront evil. Batman is almost the opposite of champions in the way that he deals with it. To Batman, the way you solve a problem is you punch it in the face until it stops moving.
0: Bust some fucking heads, yeah, exactly. Bust some
1: heads together, figure out what's going on, because he is a great detective and all of that, and then you go and you beat the shit out of them. (laughs) And there are panels here where it's just great, where there's like, like I said, you can see him like surgically taking down these guards, and then there's panels where it's just him fighting like 50 guys at one time, and just... Amazing visuals. And you get to this part where he's talking about when his parents died. There's that famous scene where he's kind of like in the parlor, kind of kneeling down and almost like praying, right? And what you find out is actually where he talks about the steel and the blood, where he's talking about that he basically was holding like a razor, like a straight razor from what I can gather, and cutting his wrists at that time.
0: Doing a blood pack,
1: basically. Well, I think he was going to kill himself. I don't think he was just swearing a blood oath. I think that the implication, and it really goes back to the title. Like, I thought the title, I Am Suicide, was referring to like the Suicide Squad esque team that he's building here. Hmm. But I think that they're saying that Batman arises kind of from that moment of like utter despair and hopelessness where you can either give in or you can stand up and fight against it. And the Batman made that choice to do so. And this one is just fantastic. And he talks about how Catwoman had said in previous issues, That when they kiss, like the world stops. Like that was one of Chris's favorite parts that the pain stops, the world stops. And Mm -hmm. Batman here says kind of the same thing, but he says it so that they can die together. The world goes away when they do that. And this one just, to me, it just feels like you just took, you know, Bruce on like the operating table and just ripped him open down to his core in this issue. It's brutal. It's insightful. It's some badass action. And at the end, you get a really awesome thing where he finally confronts Bane on his throne filled with skulls, which is just an amazing visual, you know, with Catwoman kind of behind him. It's just this issue was fantastic. I cannot say enough about it to, to read it.
0: Absolutely.
1: Like, if you took all the text out of this issue, it would be amazing. If you took all the visuals out of this issue and just had it as text, it would be amazing. And you put the two together, and it's like doubly so. I was amazed by this issue, blown away. That part where he says when they kiss, that the pain goes away because at that moment they share their death and they don't die alone. Oh, so good. It's just, oh, it's just fantastic.
0: You touched on exactly the way I felt about this when I was reading through this. Is that anybody who's played the Arkham games, you know, this is one of the things I love about the Arkham games is that when you go through and you're fighting with Batman, I swear, you don't want to go out to a rough neck bar after playing that game because <laughs> like you feel like you just take people apart after you've been sitting here with the bat and just taking out goon after goon after goon. And this was... As you're watching all this badass fight scenes where he's just taking apart like dozens and dozens of Bane soldiers over and over and over again, it gives you that same feel where it's like you really understand how fucking badass Batman is and how much of a badass fighter he is because he's one of the best martial artists in the world. What makes it great is not only those visuals, but also the soliloquy that's going along with it, it really opens up Bruce and you're looking at him down to his core and into his guts, you know, and yeah. this is just it's amazing.
1: Yeah. As he's brutally dismantling all his foes, he's brutally dismantling himself.
0: And he's showing some of his most vulnerable parts at the same time. It's just a great juxtaposition. Ah, oh, just couldn't get enough of this one. It's simple. If you just speed through it, it's a very quick read. There's not a whole lot to it. But this is one of those cases where they're taking something, they're being extremely simple, but with everything that they're throwing, there's just so much meat to it. And so, yeah, what else could you ask for? Like, I've been reading Batman for fucking decades, and I can't really think of a time where it's like I really got hit as hard as I did with this one.
1: I think you'd have to go back to, like, The Dark Knight to really get that insightful of an examination of Batman. Definitely. Tom King writes those kind of stories. He wrote The Vision, which is just fucking brutal in the way that it takes apart The Vision, and that's where we get Viv from. He writes a great series called The Sheriff of Babylon that is also just as brutal about a CIA type agent and here in batman it's again just as brutal and just as insightful and what's funny too is he doesn't do it in this issue like there's nothing funny in this issue but he's also funny as fuck when he wants to be with ridiculous things as well so he's got a lot of range here but this one is just pure brutal honesty and violence and it's fantastic i will give it five i am batman i am suicide
0: oh nice i had one prepared because i thought you might take it so uh which you did So I'm going to give it five what's next, Batman.
1: Yeah, I can't fucking wait.
0: So fucking good. So fucking good.
1: I think Bane, the way that Bane actually is, makes him, next to Ra's al Ghul, I think one of the best Batman villains. Because he can match Batman physically, and he can match Batman mentally. I totally agree. We're gonna get a confrontation
0: you know that's one of the shames about like what the movies did and stuff like that is that with the exception of the last movie the last batman movie that had bane in it bane has never really been portrayed correctly at all because everybody thinks and it's very stereotypical it's like you see this guy he's all hulked out he's huge you know and you think a bane is just a physical character but he's not because if he was just a physical character he'd never be a match for batman bane has everything he is just as strong he's strong way stronger than batman he's just as brutal as Batman, if not more. He's just as intelligent as Batman, if not more. He really is, next to Ra's al Ghul, one of Batman's most brutal, dangerous villains. You know, the only thing that makes Joker surpass Bane, I, I would say, it's just the fact that Joker is so fucking crazy and so fucking out there, it's like you really can't predict him. Bane is just raw, brutal, physical power combined with a brilliant mind, and that's I've always loved his character because of that. Because he's not just a stereotype, he's not just a big, you know, he's not just some big fucking weightlifter or anything like that. He's got everything going for him.
1: There's a couple things I think are interesting. I think all really good Batman villains are a reflection of Batman in some way. And yes. here, both Batman and Bane came from the pit of dis- fair and had to crawl their way out of it. And now yeah. they're confronting each other in this throne room. So I think that's really interesting because they had in previous issues, they showed you Bane in his prison cell that floods and he had to tread water in there and crawl crawl his way out. And here they show you Batman at the absolute moment of despair with his parents dead and both arise from the the will to triumph over those circumstances. And I think yeah, that's I really interesting. And I also think it's interesting that Bane is trying to kick the Venom. The reason the psychopirate is there is not to take over the world or anything like that it's to get him off the drugs which I think is really interesting. I mean, he still looks like a fucking beast of a of a man, but he looks more like a man than he has previously.
0: He's not nearly as hulked out as he used to be, but he's still fucking massive.
1: <laughs> so I loved it.
0: Oh, I definitely did too. Oh, it's so great. Off to the Bayou? Yep. You guys know how I love my hillbilly stories and cannibals got it in spades. <laughs> so, we are going through Cannibal number 3 Image Comics. Get a little image in here. Written by Jennifer Young and Brian Bucatello. Pencils and Inks by Mateus Bergara Colors by Brian Bucatello We've kind of covered some cannibal issues Before it's been a little bit since We've let's see here because we did number One right right and i don't remember if we did number two or i don't think we did i don't think we did so we're kind of we're kind of missing a little spot here so we're jumping back in you know we always talk about how a good comic that's one of the good things about is you can kind of jump in at any given point and jump into the story and still be able to follow what's going on well they do a really good job with this one because they have a nice little intro that tells you what's going on so if you haven't seen number one and number two of cannibal this is a good spot to jump in of course we have quick murder in the beginning mysterious little murder, a guy being stuck into the back trunk of a fucking car in the middle of the bayou, or uh, where is it? Is it Florida? It's
1: it, in the Everglades, it, yeah.
0: We've got this little small podunk town that the story's been taking place in so far. It's it's kind of like a zombie story, but it's not brainless zombies, it's humans that turn into straight-up cannibals, and end up just kind of having to feast.
1: And the thing that's interesting about this one is they don't, like you said, they're not mindless, they don't turn evil, they just need to eat human flesh, so they still have given and, like, regular relationships and all of these other things, and you don't know who it is who has, who's been infected by this virus.
0: So this little podunk town is actually starting to get paranoid as this cannibal virus is going around that's been spread basically by a, what is it, a hurricane that comes and hits the Everglades.
1: Like, ripped up some, like, mosquito fossils that had been buried for, like, a million years or whatever, and those mosquitoes are what, are, what have spread the, the cannibal virus. So you've exactly. got the wreckage of, like, a, category 5 hurricane and then you've got a cannibal plague on top of it.
0: So you have your little murder scene in the beginning. You have another character that's basically stuffed off in jail. When they lock this guy up it's because they were suspecting him of being cannibal. He'd committed a murder or something like that. I can't really remember. It's been a while since we covered number 1.
1: His girlfriend maybe it was his ex-wife. I don't know. It was somebody he was related with. They were supposed to meet up at their like literally like their like love shack out in the woods and he got there and she's missing. There's blood everywhere. Basically, the cops, of course, like arrive at that moment where he's standing in the murder room and he's kind of like drifter who just came back to town. So like, we're locking you up.
0: We've got this guy. He's locked up. The cops are talking to him and stuff like that. The interesting thing with this one to me is when it shifts back, because I think here's where the crux of this whole thing happens is it's a small town. People are starting to go crazy out of nowhere and, and committing cannibalism. Everybody's been freaking out. And we saw that from issue number one, for sure. So people are starting to get really paranoid. And so we've got another character who's in here and he's been helping out in this bar which is like the just the local watering hole that everybody goes to
1: reminds me a lot of the bar from true blood you know kind of like the local place that everyone meets hogs river bar and grill
0: very much like merlot's they really give off that same feel everybody's starting to get real paranoid they're looking at this guy because he's the new guy in town and in small rural areas like this out in the fucking country you know that's it's kind of like that sometimes anyway you know if you've ever been out in a very remote town where there's not a high population so they kind of you know when there's a stranger that pops up nobody knows who the fuck he is They kind of look at him weird anyway
1: especially when it's like stranger shows up and a bunch of murders start happening like the two and of course the two may or may not be related because there's this virus that could have affected any but it's real easy to blame the outsider rather than someone in town
0: so everybody's kind of looking at this guy and they're kind of making some remarks and stuff like that and the guy's pissed off like anybody would if, the, if they had everybody in town thinking he's some sort of murder the bartender owner basically tells everybody hey you know this guy's here with my blessing if you guys don't fucking like it well then you can get the fuck out don't have to worry about settling up you don't have to worry about saying goodbye nothing like that just get the fuck out and don't come back you're not welcome here the guy kind of like flips out and he just walks the fuck out and it's like i'm getting out of here he's he's sick of everybody's bullshit everybody's fucking riding him so he goes out and he just starts walking and finds his way out to this payphone way out in the middle of nowhere. He's basically trying to get on a boat crew and get out just as quickly as he can. He doesn't care where he doesn't anything like that. So he's out and he's calling his employer and they're like, well, you know, we'll get you back. We got nobody right now. We'll get back to you. And then some fucking rednecks roll up. And yeah, it's walk and talk and stereotypes come hop out of the pickup truck. <laughs> and so they start talking with this guy and they're telling him, you know, hey, you know you seem nice enough you're good but folks are eating folks you know, we just think it's better if you get on your way we'll give you a ride out they're like we don't care whether you want to go north whether you want to go south we'll give you a ride over to the next town over you just got to get the fuck out of here and they're insinuating a threat but at the same time it's like they're kind of being nice in a way because they're like we'll either kick your ass or you can fucking leave right the guy's like well you know what you're gonna give me a ride and they're like yeah wherever you want to go you know just get the fuck out and he gets pissed and he's like no fuck you man it's a free country and then they kick the shit out of him. And a lady that's in the trailer park next door, because of course, you know, talk a stereotype, she calls in, picks up the phone, gets the guy kind of out of trouble on that one. We go back to at the bar and there's a lady who comes in. She's got her son with her. and
1: That's not her son. That's like her, maybe her sister's son, I think. Oh, okay. Okay. His mother was found in the house murdered.
0: So she's basically caretaking over this kid, and she shows up at the bar, and she's kind of telling the story of what happened to one of the bar keeps and whatnot. And then we flash back to the other guy. The cops have shown up; they've got him in cuffs. He's like, "Why the hell am I in cuffs?" And you can see the other guys telling their story to the, one of the other police officers. Once again, very stereotypical of small towns. They're sitting there and they're going, "You know, well, we'll get this all sorted out." Blah blah blah. Uh, one of the rednecks say that he tried to bite him and so they end up having to haul him off because that's their policy is that if somebody tries to bite somebody well then they gotta be brought in for question and so they bring him in and then Cash, who's the uh, the guy who's who's been locked up earlier is in there and I I thought this was a great line because he's like, Danny, what'd you do? and he said, I wasn't born here that was good because that really illustrates yep. what's going on
1: you ain't from around here, are you? <laughs> exactly, I ain't from around here, are you, boy? Fucking true.
0: <laughs> oh, love the redneckness. but it's
1: true anywhere, though. I mean, it doesn't. It's not just in the South when stuff happens, people turn on outsiders. You know, yeah, I think the South is much more insular than
0: especially in small towns. I mean, you could be in Alaska, you could be in Canada, you could be anywhere. If you're in a small, like, you know, there's 100 people here, town, and shit starts happening, they're not going to turn on Billy and, and Jen, who they've known all their life. They're going to turn on that weirdo who's just showed up in town last night and all of a sudden weird shit starts happening. So then we have one last scene that goes on, which is basically the guy who'd been clubbed in the beginning and stuffed in the back of a car while somebody drugs him out to a, a swamp looking boat. They handcuff him, they drag him out into the middle of a swamp and then they pounce on him and it shows these two guys and you know, one of them's like, all right, get it over with son. And the other guy that's in the scene is basically just ripping into the guy. So you can see that he's basically got a son that's got, got the cannibal disease and he's just helping his son. Helping get his finished. boy out. So one hell of a finish, man. One hell of a finish. I mean, it's quick and sweet, which I, I guess is not, not to be unexpected in a third edition but i mean this series is really good i love the artwork it's not super complex it kind of it looks very rough all around
1: reminds me a lot of southern bastards
0: very much like southern bastards once again it's it's one of these great (laughs) she said the you know dueling banjos (laughs) style comics that we've all been into lately here and uh, yeah it's just good i'm digging this series and i'm gonna i got a feeling we're gonna be following this one for a while.
1: What I like about this one is it's not, like, it doesn't fall down into good and bad on who becomes a cannibal, right? It's, it's a disease and diseases can affect anyone regardless of, you know, whether they're a criminal or a cop or whatever. And there's this one scene that is fucking menacing that I love where the little boy who's like, I don't know, maybe seven or whatever, whose mom was killed, you know, in their house, and there's this fucking sinister ass scene where he's just kind of sitting on this bar stool by himself. I'm pretty sure that kid is a cannibal.
0: Yeah, no doubt. I'm pretty
1: sure he killed his mom and ate her.
0: <laughs> no doubt. Anytime you got some kid in a fucking scene, you know, in comic books or movies, you know the little bastard's evil, so... <laughs>
1: yeah, for sure.
0: Always. Just a great one to throw into that, Tales of the South, so I'm going to give this one for Breaker Window Slasher Tires.
1: I don't think I was quite as in love with it as you are. Okay, I will give it three. I wasn't born here. So again, kind of dealing with maybe Birthright a little bit here. We're heading over to Marvel for Unworthy Thor number two from Marvel Comics. The Thief of Asgard, written by Jason Aaron, and Sneaks by Oliver Coppell, Colors by Matt Wilson. So Unworthy Thor number two, like I said, it's by Jason Aaron, so immediately you know the quality on it is going to be really high. And this series really seems to tap into that kind of weird 70s vibe that Thor had for a while, that Doctor Strange had, where it's just kind of trippy right? So Thor is no longer Thor. He lost the hammer because the Watcher whispered a secret to him that made him unworthy. So he's just the son now. And he's in space, and he's heard about that there's another hammer from Secret Wars, from the Thors that Doom, God Doom had, that one of their hammers ripped its way through space and time and all these different realities crash-landed on Asgard. So he's off to find the other, this other hammer. And when he gets there, Asgard is missing. It's just fucking gone. So at first we were talking, about how it might have been like an Alderon thing where it was destroyed, but Beta Ray Bill is there and he tells him it wasn't destroyed, it was taken by someone. And they're like well, who the hell could take an entire realm of reality? And he's like well, there's really only a couple people who are powerful enough to do that. He's going to explain who it is, but then they get attacked by like spaceships and they start fighting and throwing axes and goats are destroying spaceships by ramming them. Lots of crazy action scenes there. You also have an interesting part where Beta Ray Bill is telling him to take his hammer, to take I think it's Stormbringer, I think is the name of his hammer. And to use it because he's Thor's ally and he knows that Thor is still worthy even if he doesn't. And he's like, no, I'm not worthy of the hammer. So he refuses that. And then you find out that the person who has taken Asgard is the Collector, <laughs> who I've always thought of as kind of like a goofy-ass character. But in here, you kind of realize how powerful and menacing he actually is. Yes. That he's an ancient like celestial being. He's like three billion years old. He's older than Asgard. So they have this thing where they're like, well, why did you steal Asgard? Asgard doesn't really have any it anymore. It's just like ruined temples and abandoned places. So, I mean, I guess if you're interested in archaeology, sure, maybe you'd want it. And the collector is like, no, I didn't want Asgard, but I couldn't get the hammer. Like, I couldn't lift the hammer, so I had to take the land that it was sitting on, which is kind of interesting that the scope that the collector will go through to get what he wants. Mm -hmm. And then there's this fucking evil dick move where he brings out this, like, little alien kid who's, like, the last surviving member of his race and basically holds a gun to his head and tells Thor to go pick up the hammer uh, or tell the collector how to do it. Like, there has to be some trick to it because in the collector's mind he's worthy you know he's ultra powerful there's nothing in the universe he can't get so why is this hammer This something that he can't lift and his men are so fucking evil that whenever they try and touch the hammer they're just completely destroyed and when the collector tried to pick it up himself if he wasn't so powerful himself he would have also been destroyed so Thor is telling him that there's no trick to it and that he recognizes that this is a hammer of Thor it's a different one from a different reality but it is you know a hammer of Thor yeah. and he goes to try and pick it up and he gets like knocked out as well because he's not worthy right <laughs>
0: Hence the title.
1: yeah this is the part that's evil right so thor did the odinson i should say the odinson did what the collector asked and he's like make sure that when he wakes up he sees the body and they're like well what body are you talking about sir and he just turns around and shoots the kid in the head so he uh-huh. can see the dead body for the price of his disobedience
0: yeah brutal. i'm like
1: holy shit <laughs> like you are fucking evil
0: fucking brutal
1: yeah and then you get this part and this i wasn't sure and you're not supposed to know because it's very mysterious you know i have a theory but you get a shot to the triskelion in new york where they're holding thanos mm-hmm. and this mysterious figure in a robe appears to him and is like i'm here to help you and thanos is like basically fuck you you can't help me you know you can't even help yourself yeah my theory i think that that's loki okay i think the green cloak loki uses a lot of green i think that that's who that is but i could be wrong one question i had had was, it seems like their Thanos continuity is getting a little blurry, right? Like, mm-hmm. where does this take place? Is this before the stuff in um, Civil War II, where Thanos gets freed? I'm not sure where this falls in the timeline there, but it is yeah. certainly possible this could have occurred during Civil War before Thanos gets busted loose. Very true. And so he wants a tribute, which is very clearly going to be that hammer of Thor that he wants, which will be really interesting to see what Thanos, if Thanos can lift the hammer of Thor. Yeah. Like, what does worthy mean, I think, is an issue that this is kind of addressing. Is it worthy like from a moral point of view? Is it pure power? I think the way the Collector, when he tries to grab it, tells you it's not pure power, but I wouldn't put anything past Thanos. So I thought this one was really interesting. I like the stuff with Beta Ray Bill. It's kind of trippy and that kind of 70s tribute. It's got some great writing from Jason Aaron. You get to see the Collector in a new way. I always thought of him as a very goofy villain, and here you kind of realize the scope of what he does and what he is.
0: I really enjoyed it a lot. Okay, so uh, with that end panel, I kind of- I've had my theories too because at first, yeah, I, I went with the same thing. I was like, "Oh, that's probably Loki" and stuff like that. But at one point or another, Thor has this vision—well, it's a dream or whatever—and that's Gore, the God Butcher. And so my theory is it's either Loki, which is a very good theory. I mean, obviously that's an easy uh, cat's paw to throw in there, right? But I'm thinking that that might be Gore and I'm not sure exactly what his motivation would be to free Thanos and all this, but I'm thinking because it just seemed odd to me that they drop in gore right there, and he's talking about what if they deserve a godless age, and da 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 you know, so I'm thinking that that might be gore going to Thanos to basically mm. free him for some sort of nefarious purpose.
1: Well, that whole thing with the god butcher is one of my favorite Thor story arcs, so that would be really good, too. You know, we'll have to just wait and see, I guess, what who it is, but I, I like this one. I like the scope of this one. Thor isn't just on Earth helping out, you know, with bank robberies and what have you. He's dealing with some really realm-crossing cosmic stuff. And it looks fucking badass, too.
0: The artwork in this is just fucking amazing. The storyline is really interesting.
1: I think I'm going to give it three and a half Stormbringers. I
0: think it really gets me excited to get in this because at first I was like, ah, oh, you know, The Unworthy Thor, what the fuck is this all about? Once I actually broke her open and got into it, it gets me excited for the series. So I'm going to give it Three and a half, what if a godless age is what they deserve?
1: So, this next one, not only is this a book we choose all the time, but this was also a listener request as well.
0: So, we've got Aliens Defiance number seven, Dark Horse Comics, episode seven, Excision, written by Brian Wood, pencils and inks by Stephen Thompson, colors by Dan Jackson. Now, if you guys remember, we've been covering Aliens Defiance for a while, but we kind of strayed off from it for a bit a couple issues back. and This was one that I picked up when it first started. It's been really good so far, but, you know, it kind of drifted, and we got a lot of stuff that's coming out that's really good right now. We kind of drifted away from it for a while to cover other issues, and now we're coming back. What a
1: hell of a way to return to the series, man. Such tension and personal horror. Like, oh my god.
0: We find out at the beginning that Hendricks has gone out and at one point or another, her and Davis, the synthetic, have actually like killed off an entire affected space station of Marines. And so now they're out here and they're with apparently a survivor from one of those things. I'm not sure exactly how this plays in. Like I said, we've been away from it for a minute
1: she's like a scientist that when they got to that space station she was like the last person alive on it and she was reading the space station to blow up to take out all the aliens and her and they had this big battle in this hallway and this like face sucker landed on her like, spacesuit, and they you know pried it off and I think they think they got it in time but like they have this panel it's either an issue five or six I don't remember I think it was an issue five but, like the panel ends where you can see the acid has like melted the face shield a little bit and I think that's where it got her
0: nice
1: and then the last issue was her doing the scan of her midsection and that's where she discovered this horrible little present for her.
0: We start off with her basically talking with Hendrix and Davis, and she's showing them basically baby pictures of... <laughs> yeah. The alien that's growing inside of her.
1: What to expect when you're expecting a fucking monster
0: inside you? Showing exactly how quickly it's growing, which is scary as fuck. She's talking about how, you know, her medical training has, like, gotten her detached, and then plus a shitload of anti-anxiety meds to keep her calm and stuff. So what they basically kind of came up with on this one is that they're going to, you know, Waylon yutani has basically been trying to get these aliens so that they could engineer them to be a well they come up with this idea that maybe we could take this alien and figure out how to reverse engineer it and destroy the whole fucking species because the xenomorphs are obviously like they're basically like the universe's perfect predator they're damned hard to kill and they're damned hard to get rid of they're like cockroaches that have acid blood and razor sharp teeth and claws davis is basically walking through and he's re-engineering this section of the space station so that they could freeze this alien it's basically like put it into cryo sleep once it's out and so they go through and the doctor is asking Hendrix basically, hey, you know, if things go bad, you know, and this thing goes away, I want you to take the first shot. So she's basically telling her not only to kill her, but to kill the alien. Same felt stroke. So she's basically like opens herself up and then Davis the synthetic is doing the operation, but she's conscious and telling him because she knows their anatomy and whatnot.
1: And they're really tangled into her organs and yes. arteries and stuff, so they have to separate it out.
0: Exactly. And if you guys remember alien the very first movie and that's actually something that happens as they're trying to remove the alien from one of the first victims is that the more you try and get rid of them the more it tries. burrows deeper and so that it's going to have to kill whoever it's it's infected basically she's conscious during this whole thing and she's instructing Davis on exactly what he needs to clamp off what he needs to do at what precise time and then he pulls he goes through and he's gets her opened up and then they're just about to get it out and she starts freaking out and she's like get it out of me get it out of me we find out a little bit later that there's a reason why because it's it's a timing thing is that if you do it a little bit too early if you don't do things in the right order it's either going to burrow deeper into you or it's going to cause severe damage if not kill you on the way out so the little alien gets dropped on the floor and then starts racing around davis obviously being a synthetic he's able to grab the thing mid-air and he goes through this actually i thought it was a pretty cool little fight scene
1: i thought it was really interesting because the alien comes out in and this ambiotic sac, and it bursts out of that, and is like from the moment it's out is. Fucking dangerous as hell. There is yep. no newborn alien defenselessness.
0: And so he's brawling with this thing the entire time, you know, kind of like from the delivery room, in essence, all the way out to the hallway, and he like wrestles it, and it's like getting away from him and trying to get after that him. Like me of like
1: a cat that you're trying to put in the like, shower. Yes. <laughs> it's just like, fuck you!
0: The entire time, it's nothing but fangs and claws and trying to kill him, and of course, being that he's synthetic, he's got superior reflexes and fighting ability, so he's able to like fend it off until he throws it into this cryo isolation room and I thought it was a great quote because after he throws it in there and puts it on ice he's like that was just as terrible as I suspected it would be yeah <laughs> Which, that was a great fucking line
1: What's well, what I liked about that that whole scene is it, it's really fucking tense what's going on and it balances the personal horror of what's going on of not only having this alien creature inside of, of being awake and having to tell someone how to do surgery on you while you're conscious and then you get this really tense action sequence as well really
0: well done yeah, just really well done. We go back to the doctor, and Hendrix is doing the field medic stuff, the basic stuff to get her back to survivable methods. Of course, she the doctor is is telling her exactly what she needs to do, which I thought that was fascinating. And I've actually seen historical examples of this where a doctor was basically like in this remote like military base and actually had to instruct other people while awake without anesthesia to uh, do surgery on them and stuff. So that was a really cool scene there where she's like instructing. Zula like to do all this stuff. Later on, she shows up and goes and is looking at the alien in cryo sleep, And they're like trying to to work out, they're trying to do the experiments that it takes to figure out how to reverse engineer the xenomorphs. Oh, just such a good.
1: This feels like you're watching a movie. Yes. And not in a bad, this is a bad rip off of a movie, like the pacing for it. It just it really feels like you're in the aliens universe. To me, the thing that really struck me was just how horrific that has to be for that doctor, like feels so bad. For her, and she's such a badass. Having to be awake without anesthesia, instruct someone to cut out this thing that's inside of you. Like aliens has always been kind of a a sexual assault metaphor. in in my mind anyway you know and there's this foreign thing inside her that she doesn't want inside of her anymore and she has to perform this operation awake without anesthesia then the thing gets loose and then you know after that she has to tell them how to stitch her up she's been through a hell of a lot that is one tough lady hell yes damn good spaceships too like you get all kinds of
0: what I love about it is you go to the inside of these ships and there's a lot of rough imagery and things are very drawn very rough and very everything's very rough and gritty and all that stuff and then when you go the outside scenes where you're in outer space and they're looking at a ship everything's crisp as fuck you know and they've kept with it and I dig it and this is just it's such a good series
1: yeah I've found every issue of it to be really entertaining and this one is no exception
0: I'm gonna give it three and three quarters some injuries aren't so obvious
1: I will give it four I've never heard fear in his voice Dead No More The Clone Conspiracy number three from Marvel Comics written by Dan Slott pencils by Jim Chung inks by John Dell Colors by Justin Ponzer. So this one is the story of a uh, Spider-Man. Peter Parker has uncovered the Jackal's plot where he has this cloning facility going and he's cloning all these supervillains and Peter Parker is trying to figure out what's going on and is like, you're making this supervillain army and the Jackal is telling him, I'm not making a supervillain army. I'm bringing people back to life and giving them like a second chance. And there's this whole thing where there's clones and there's like, Gwen Stacy from Different Dimensions is here and they've toured this facility and 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 now they're escaping through the tunnels. And I kind of like this where they're in like the maintenance hatches that I don't know why facilities build these things so big (laughs) for people to be able to crawl through, but they can and they hear something coming after him. And like Peter Parker is like, I know that noise. That's the lizard. You know, that's Dr. Connors coming after us to eat us alive. And then because Dr. Connors is the lizard, but he's been kind of fixed by the resurrection process because he doesn't Mm -hmm. have all that like mental trauma. He's like, well, my body may be a reptile, but I am quite civilized and my boss doesn't want you hurt. And Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy, they're both like, huh, our spider sense isn't going off. You know, he's, he's kind of telling the truth here. What do you think we should do about it? And like, you thinking what I'm thinking? Yep. And then it cuts to them both like drop kicking him, you know, and taking him out. Which I was like, kind of a dick move to Dr. Connors, but they gotta get away, so I understand it. So that's when Gwen Stacy's dad, who is also a, a clone here, dispatches all the supervillains that the Jackal has cloned to try and find his daughter also a clone. It, it gets kind of confusing here. There's lots of clones and people from different realities and stuff going on here. And I love it where he's telling all the supervillains, he's like, y'all look like a damn Halloween, like Christmas carnival, you know, freak show. Don't be seen. Like, stick to the shadows and do your stuff. So you have got all these crazy villains like running around, like Mysterio and the Hobgoblin, Jack-o'-lantern, just clearly evil-looking villains running around trying to be not seen while Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy are trying to get back to Horizon University where the Gwen Stacy, who's the clone that they kidnapped, is being held by the Scarlet Spider, and there's these pills that these clones have to take, otherwise they start, their bodies start breaking down, they will eventually turn into like these zombie monster things, and when Stacy is like telling them like, give me the pill that you have, and they're like, well we can't give you the pill because we need the pill to synthesize, you know, the cure for you, and that's when the Scarlet Spider tells them that as one of the original clones of the Jackal, like the first clone of the Jackal, he's been kind of infected with like a benign version of it, so he's like a zombie zombie underneath, but he's not infectious. So they're like, oh shit, well, we can just use you to like synthesize the cure. You find out that they're going to start using him. And that's when they call the cops to let them know what's happening over at the cloning facility. And it's kind of interesting here. Like the cop is like taking all their information down, you know, oh, there's supervillains at the cloning facility and, you know, writing it all down or whatever. And you see these newspaper articles framed behind her, which is like police chief shot miracle cop. So while she's talking you're like, huh, that's kind of interesting. And then she opens up a pill bottle. that's the same pills that all the clones are asking for. And she takes the pill, so you're like, oh shit, she's a clone too. So now all the supervillains know where Gwen Stacy's being held, and they go to rescue her. So you've got like Doc Ock, and the Rhino, and Girl Electra. like I don't know what her electro, what her name is. They're in there just wrecking shop. Like They're not actually trying to kill anybody. They just want Gwen Stacy back. And then Peter Parker and alternate reality Spider Gwen show up at the facility, and it's all wrecked. And Peter Parker is like, what the fuck? Why didn't you guys tell me what's going on? You've got the Scarlet Spider got you from another dimension you've got all these other spider themed heroes going on I'm the Spider-Man of this reality why didn't you tell me what's going on and they tell him you know we've seen this in multiple realities happen and then every time the Peter Parker of that world ends up siding with the Jackal Peter Parker's like no fucking way whatever side with that psychopath there's you know that's never going to happen and the Kingpin shows up and the Kingpin is like I know where their backup facility is at and if you give me a favor I'll tell you where it's at and I like this part where Peter Parker calls bullshit on him and he's like the Jackal cloned your wife wife and it went horrible he's like so you want this just as much if not more than I do so he's like I'll take your information but I don't owe you a favor you owe me a favor and Kingpin's like okay fine by me so then they're off to the jackal is getting this box delivered to him and you're like what the hell is this it's all mysterious what's going on and there's a big brawl at the docks and Peter Parker starts fighting the jackal and the jackal has always been really really smart he's been like a super scientist but he's not strong or fast or anything like that there's Peter is trying to whoop the shit out of him and he's just dodging out of his way. It's like very like keto. He's just like sidestepping all his punches and dodging out of the way and Peter can't connect with him. And Peter's like what the hell is going on? I've fought you before and you're really smart but you're not you know you're not this fast or this strong. And that's when the jackal says you know I'm wearing this red suit but it's really not red it's much more of like a darker color like a crimson. And he takes off the fucking jackal mask and you see that it is actually Ben Riley, who is the original Scarlet Spider. Uh. You're like oh shit. So now it's even more clone craziness going on, but the thing that really fucking sets it off and makes you see why why Spider-Man is always sided with him from this time forward. He tells him what's in the box that it's Uncle Ben, and he's ready to bring him back. What's in the box? What's in the box? So is Peter Parker going to side with the Jackal to bring back Uncle Ben? Is he not going to? Is he going to resist that temptation? Is the Jackal even really that villainous? Like, he's had plenty of opportunity to fucking kill Peter Parker, and he hasn't. And he's brought back these super villains and made this army that he could use to go and take over the city or conduct crime or do whatever, and he hasn't done any of that. So it's not really clear. Is he really trying to help pull and just kind of doing it in a, a way that he hasn't thought of all the consequences for? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but this one was pretty good. Lots of plot twists. I kind of feel like you definitely need like a flow chart and you need to know your Spider-Man history because like when the reveals come you have to know why it's so shocking that it happens because if you're just like I don't know who that is then it doesn't have the full impact if you don't know who Ben Riley is if you don't know who the other Scarlet Spiders are if you don't know the Jackal and all the clone stuff that's happened it's I think some of the impact will get lost but if you do know this is pretty damn amazing the art's great I love the scene where they're fighting because you get all of these again Peter Parker and Spider-Man are really where they Really pioneered that thing that I love in comic books where you have motion panels. So the fight scenes are kind of like that. It looks very much like a Matrix fight scene where the people are just kind of like dodging and moving out of the way. And you have multiple, they're not shadow images, but they're like color images of the people in different positions where they used to be when they're executing their attacks. It's, it's really interesting. I liked it. I will give it three and a half box of Uncle Ben. <laughs> Up. I would definitely suggest, if you haven't, if you're not that up on your Spider-Man lore, whenever they mention someone's name, just Google them real quick. Just go to Wikipedia and look them up, because it really matters who they are and kind of their backstories. So, yeah. over to Star Wars. Well, I'm kind
0: of sorry that we don't have the girls here, because we're looking at Star Wars Doctor Aphra number one, which, as we all know the girls love. I love it too. We all love Doctor Aphra. This is Marvel Comics, Aphra Book 1, Part 1, written by Kiryan Gillen, art by Salvador LaRocca, colors by El- edgar delgado we left off in darth vader where dr afro barely escapes from the death that is darth vader so now she's returned back to her indiana jones ask ways
1: like this dark reflection of the opening for indiana jones
0: absolutely so you have this mysterious figure who's out there and he's going through this thing and he's getting this artifact and barely escapes with his life and then uh, he pulls Gets off his chased mask. down
1: a tunnel by a big ass boulder it's totally indiana jones
0: and he's like, oh shit. When he gets out, he's like, that was a close one. You hear, sure, it sure was. And he's like, Aphra, wait, you, pow. She shoots him in the back.
1: <laughs> Just like it's in Indiana Jones, where the person takes the relic from Indiana.
0: Great way to set tone. Aphra heads back with her newly found artifact and meets up with, of course, our favorite murder droids. Oh, they're great. So after Dr. Aphra returns back with her artifact to meet up with the murder droids, she runs into this skeezy looking guy and is two giant, hairy, whatever the fuck they are's. <laughs> Some kind of, like,
1: Wookiee knockoff, yeah.
0: Ghetto Wookiee goons. <laughs> they're trying to get her to basically pay back her money, and of course, they're always trying to skize over on her. But once things start getting violent, well, then she brings out, what is it, Black Kershantan, I think his name.
1: She's like, I'll put my one Wookiee against your two discount Wookiees. Yeah,
0: exactly. Because, you know, of course, she owes him money, and he's following her around to make sure that she's able to pay him back by staying alive. So they go to hand-to-hand, of course. He just whoops the fuck out of Ghetto wookies. Yeah, except no substitutes. She still owes them money, but basically she's one time to pay him back. So the murder droids are like, hey, we need to go get some supplies. And she's like, oh yeah, sure, you know, bring me back a Slurpee. Ugh.
1: What could go wrong letting you run off by yourselves? <laughs> Never let murder droids out of your sight unsupervised without clear instructions.
0: So they go back and they find their way to a cantina and of course they murder the competition because they're like, eh, we're having fun with Dr. Aphra Af- so we're not gonna let you get in the way of that.
1: So they like find him in the bathroom and inject him with like a needle to make it look like a heart attack and then they're like no we can't burn the body that'll make it look like it's not a naturally occurring death and then there's like the little r2 version you know murder r2 is like beep boop boop and he's like no spontaneous human combustion is not a thing we can't burn him
0: droids aren't meant to do many things sir i really let that stop me (laughs) like
1: a clear callback to me like in uh, tatooine when c3po tries to go into the bar and they're like your kind's not welcome here and they just don't give a fuck triple zero does not care
0: They go on and they're trying to sell this thing you know hawk it off to another droid they can't sell it off and uh, another funny interaction because the droid that they're talking to is like oh sorry ms afra and she's like dr afra sorry ms afra but your doctor has been defended <laughs> so she's trying to hawk this thing on the black market and everything's going to shit and then she runs into a priestly looking guy who's saying well yeah maybe it's a morality issue and you know we looked at your spiritual s- salvation and she's like dad oh shit you know and that's where of course
1: the bad girl's dad as a priest, right?
0: Exactly. Makes perfect sense.
1: And then there's that backup story where you find out how she got her doctorate.
0: Oh, I missed oh. the backup story. Damn
1: it. Oh my God, dude, it is so fucking awesome. Oh, I totally missed that. It looks like the end, right? Because it's got like the end page and whatever. So the story is she's hella smart in school but completely undisciplined and doesn't want to actually do any, like, work, <laughs> right? And there's this professor who fucking hates her and ends up taking her kind of, like, under his wing to be in charge of her doctoral thesis review board kind of thing. And at first she's like, oh, it must mean that he likes me. Under all that gruff exterior he, you know, appreciates my gumption, right? And then he tells her, like, you're a piece of shit. The reason I brought you under my review board is so that you will never get a doctorate as long as I'm alive. The reason she's in this trouble is there's this planet where she was doing this archaeological dig and finally found basically like a pyramid type thing that she finally got into the inner chamber of and ends up being empty. And you find out that it's just like a grain silo. It's not anything of significance. Mm. And she's like shit i have to turn this empty room into something so amazing they can't deny me so she finds out that this this older professor has these in like suspended animation these symbiote things that take over people's minds and it brought down like all kinds of previous empires and he found them on this other archaeological dig that he did and he's like held them away in like this secret chamber because it's like too dangerous of knowledge for the universe if the world ever found out about these symbiotes that were supposed to be wiped out that he has copies of them people would come for them so he's locked them away and Afra, you know, sees it, and she's like, aha. <laughs> so she fucking breaks in, steals all the symbiotes, takes them into the grain silo she found, and leaves them there, and then, like, re-breaks in with, like, a news crew, basically. And she's like, oh my god, this is so amazing! What mysteries are here? How did these symbiotes end up here? What's the story of this planet and this thing that looks like maybe a grain silo, but really it's holding this, like, secret weapon in it? So she gets her doctorate, right? And her best friend is like, Dr. Afra, that's such an amazing discovery! And this huge mystery your answers only cause more questions to be asked i'm going to spend my entire life dedicated to finding the answers to these mysteries you've uncovered she's like good luck with that and just kind of like walks away and like sends her friend on this wild goose chase basically to investigate her bullshit archaeological find that she created you'd see what that ethical lapse was that her doctorate she never really earned her doctorate (laughs) (laughs) but she earned being a badass space scoundrel you know
0: awesome (laughs) <laughs> so it was good. I'm going to have to go back and reread that.
1: <laughs> it's worth it. It's not very many pages, but it's a lot of impact.
0: I totally missed that. Oh, I can't believe it.
1: It happens. It looks like the end of the book, though. Yeah. So I could see how you could miss it.
0: Yeah. Uh, whoops.
1: <laughs> so what'd you end up giving it?
0: Murder droids make it easy. So, uh, But overall, the issue's great. Artwork's great. Same thing that we've come to love about Dr. Aphra and the murder droids. I'm going to give it four. Droids aren't meant to do many things, sir.
1: I love this one. If you have maybe not been reading the Star Wars, stuff, and you want to read something set in the Star Wars universe that's really badass, check out Dr. Aphra. It is really great. And I don't feel like you really need to have read the previous issues. Like, they sum it up well enough for you that you understand what's going on. Yes. I will give it four and a half nice empty vaults, sir. Nice. When he goes back to check the stuff that she stole from him. <laughs> so, the next one that we have Nova. is part of the new Marvel Now. It's Nova number 1 from Marvel Comics, written by Jeff Loveness and Ramon Perez art by Ramon Perez, colors by Ian Herring. Nova, I've never been a really big fan of. I I don't really know that much about him, but this one was actually pretty damn good. Yes. I found. So I've always known, you know, Nova has his black helmet from, like, his dad and he's the last Nova. Like, I knew all of that. Here, Richard Ryder, who I guess is a previous Nova, has been resurrected in some way and is like, back on Earth. And he's having, like, a creepy nightmare about it. Like, it's still messing with his head a little bit. And he's zooming around with his Nova helmet, just looking at being up in space and kind of enjoying that power again and it cuts over to little nova like i don't know what how to refer to them because there's two novas but it cuts over to the nova with the black helmet which is like the ultimate nova helmet and he's over at the living planet that's infected by these like spiders and the living planet is a total dick him and he's trying to help him and they're giving each other a bunch of shit back and forth which is actually pretty funny it's hilarious he's like I'm not gonna take orders from a planet with a goatee it's and a he's beer. like it's a beer <laughs> Pretty funny. So Nova gets this idea. He's like, Oh, I got this idea from the dinosaurs. And he grabs like an asteroid and like throws it down onto the surface of the planet to create like the dust storm that'll kill everything on the planet, which I thought was pretty awesome. And then Living Planet's like, Oh, I have such a headache now. So that was kind of funny to show you.
0: Right after he drops the asteroid, I love the fact that all of a sudden he's getting like a text message. I'm like, What kind of service, like, carrier do you have? (laughs) Intergalactic service anywhere, you dick. How much (laughs) does that cost you?
1: Like, I've got to go back to Arizona. Where's Arizona. Living Plan is like, what is Arizona? <laughs> <laughs> See ya, Beardo. So he flies off back to home and like lands like at the breakfast table, eating like a really quick breakfast and like chugging a gallon of milk and like flies off. And like before he flies off, his mom is like, "You've been in space for four days. You gotta stink. Go take a shower." <laughs> He's like, "Avengers don't have time for showers." Oh, and like great. flies off. That was great. I love this. Then he gets like to school, and this is like the reoccurring nightmare that everybody has. Like he takes off the helmet, and that's when he realizes he doesn't actually have any clothes on underneath the Nova helmet. And like all the kids start showing up for school, and they start you know laughing at him and taking like pictures with their cell phones and stuff. And his friend comes by, and he's like, you know, hey man, I need your pants. And he's like, what are you talking about? I I only have one pair of pants. These are mine. You know, I need them too. So he's like, well, I do have my gym clothes in my bag, but I haven't like you know washed them in like four months, so they smell pretty bad. He's like, whatever, just just give them to me. So he's walking around like him clothes for the rest of the day that hella stink and there's this new girl that he obviously has like a crush on who this is her first time that she sees him is like him standing in the parking lot with like just his underwear and she's like you're really weird and then he's with his gang of friends who like are following him around giving him a bad time for getting fired from the avengers and he's like i didn't get fired from the avengers i quit to become champion and they're like whatever dude sorry you got (laughs) let, let go from the avengers it's just like not buying his story that they quit of their own free will which i thought was hilarious and then i love or they're pressuring him to go talk to the new girl and he goes up and then it's like it shows all these like villains that he's like fighting and can do all this like superhero shit but he cannot talk to a girl yeah which I love that it sets that feeling like in junior high you know where you're trying to talk to the girl at the locker and you're just saying the dumbest shit and you know you smell really bad and you're really awkward and it just isn't going very well at all so I thought that that little interaction was really really great and all his friends are kind of like standing behind him like laughing at at him. Uh, it was really good to show you like every junior eye social anxiety about interacting with women <laughs> that I thought was pretty funny. He's
0: like talking himself up like, oh, you could tell you that he used to be a member of the Avengers. and <laughs>
1: He's like, you can totally talk to women. You're good at this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's like, it's like, no, you're not, dude.
0: <laughs> so awkward.
1: To me, that was the best part of the book. Yeah. So then the new guy, well, I guess it's the old guy who's got his Nova helmet and he's tooling around and, you know, enjoying being up in space and something happens to him and he plummets like back to Earth. (laughs) This one was actually made me a little more interested in Nova. I don't know that much about the Nova character. It's never really been someone I've been that interested in. I've always found it to be previous issues and arcs of Nova. I felt like they've tried to hit you over the head with the fact that he's Latino too much. That awkward Spanish being thrown in that like white guys write, you know, when they're trying to show you his like street cred, basically, that just doesn't sound right. That was my problem with a lot of the previous issues that I read. So I'm like, this is terrible. I don't want to read this. It's not very good. But this one I felt really nailed that kind of awkward in-between space that he's at, where he has all this cosmic power, you know, where he can fly around the universe and throw asteroids into planets and all that, but he cannot talk to a girl. I thought that was really interesting, and the art was pretty decent, I have to say.
0: I really digged how they did. They basically dubbed in the four color look on the pages. If you look at careful at, at his little brawl with uh, his imaginary supervillains, they're
1: all pixelated and stuff. Yeah,
0: what it would look like back in the four color printing phase, would like with the different colors laid over each other and stuff like that. And I, I dug that a lot. I'm just like you. I don't know much about Nova. They haven't really revealed much about him in any of the other comics that he's been in that I've read recently. But you know what? This was fun. I enjoyed reading it. There was a lot of funny shit. They definitely captured that awkward teenage moments and stuff. And yeah, I don't know. I just I I dug it. It was a fun run. It was not what I was expecting, that's for sure.
1: I think I would give it three and a half. It's a beard.
0: You know, I'm right there with you. I really enjoyed it. It wasn't like mind-blowing or anything like that, but it was definitely a good comic, good artwork, fun stuff. I'm going to give it three and a half. You probably talk to girls all the time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) most terrifying thing you can face. (laughs)
0: Uh, It's funny that Thanos was saying that, man. Oh, that's, that cracked me up so hard alright so that's what we got for the week all right, so those were the books we read this week, Beard Bro Edition. To check out our weekly pull list and other nerd shenanigans. Go to FourColorNerds.com or our Facebook page, Four Color Nerds. You can follow us on Twitter or on Instagram. You can find us. At, you can find the podcast on iTunes, on Google Play Music,
1: on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, and on Podcast Addict.
0: We also have a second podcast for PC gaming for the cheap and broke, Four Color Nerds Broke Gaming, or as I like to call it, Broke Ass Gaming. Be sure to come back next week and check up on another episode until then keep on reading nerds